This is now the third lesson on Presbyterianism, uh, where we are trying to identify what a Presbyterian identity looks like, uh, both historically and in the modern context. In other words, we're answering the question, what is a Presbyterian, especially uh, in a context where Presbyterianism, in, in, a, in a general sense, carries with it connotations that we would wish to disassociate ourselves from, uh, speaking of the mainline Presbyterian church. Uh, but the question is, when you come into a Presbyterian church, when you're the example of the traveler, uh, let's say you're a member of a conservative PCA church and you're traveling, do you feel comfortable when you're traveling attending another PCA church? Very often those people will end up here because they don't. They don't know what they're going to get. So when you see Presbyterian on the uh, on the sign or on the website, are you confident you know what you're going to get? Uh, and the answer is no. There's there's a liturgical. Uh, what's the opposite of uniformity? <laughs> diversity. That's the word. Uh, there's a theo- there's a liturgical diversity, which many are celebrating today. Uh, Terry Johnson in his book talks about that, but which in reality is totally alien to the notion of what it is to be reformed uh, or Presbyterian. We're looking, reformed is a broader category than Presbyterian. Remember, reformed means that's one of the three branches of the Reformation. Reformed, think Calvin, Lutheran, that one's obvious, and then Anglican. And, and really, Anglican and Lutheran, when you think of what those churches stand for, you think of a particular style of worship. But do you think of that with the Reformed? And you would have up until probably the 20th century. You would have thought of a building with white walls, uh, just like this. You wouldn't see stained glass windows, for instance. You would think of the pulpit in the center, uh, prioritizing the centrality of preaching, uh, the singing of hymns, much of, much of what you find today. That, uh, the regulative principle is something we're going to talk about. So Presbyterians were known for their distinctive style of worship. Uh, in contrast to other branches of Protestantism, and also in contrast to Roman Catholicism, which is known for its own style of worship. It wasn't as though, you, you know, they, they took the doctrine of justification, they fixed that, but then worship looked the same. It, that wasn't what happened in the Reformation. They were reforming worship. So uh, what is a Presbyterian? Terry Johnson, uh, he says that, that worship is not merely, uh, or he, well, he, he doesn't use the word not. He's describing the view he's contending against, that worship is merely a matter of one's personal taste or preference. Is that, is that true? Is it just a matter of taste or preference? You know, one of the ways to ask the question is, if we were to plant a church in Africa, would it look like this? It, or are we just, is this, is our worship just a cultural expression? Is it? Uh, apparently, Terry Johnson gave a, gave a great talk about that uh, that I haven't listened to, uh, where he dealt with the question of worship and race and whether Presbyterian worship was just a cultural Western white <laughs> expression or w- whether it was an expression of something else. Was it an expression of theological convictions? Uh, so I haven't I haven't listened to that talk, but uh, I, I'm told it's excellent and it doesn't surprise me, given the emphasis of his book. Is it a matter of taste? Or are we giving uh, are we giving expression to our theological beliefs? And where do we see our theo- theological beliefs most coming into focus? Uh, for the Pietist, as we've discussed, the Pietist it would be 
in his daily living or maybe in his in his personal devotions, what is called quiet time. Uh, but for but for uh, for a Roman Catholic, maybe it would be at the table of the Lord's Supper. Uh, but for uh, but for a Presbyterian, the answer is in public worship In public worship. This is what he says. If we are to see worship revitalized in the Presbyterian community, there must be a restored sense of the supreme importance of worship. So that has to be your starting point. It, it can't be a negotiable, uh, no matter how dire the days in which you're living. So the supreme importance of worship, period. You have to start there. If you don't, then the discussion is already over. But if you start there, then the question is, what should worship look like if we are agreed as Presbyterians that our, again, our, our devotion is, is best expressed in uh, the hour of worship? He says, worship, after all, was not a secondary issue for Reformed Presbyterians. It was the issue. And he's talking about, uh, he's talking about from the period of the Reformation up to the 20th century. Uh, he gives the same quote that Darrell does. Calvin, the, Calvin says, uh, the whole substance of Christianity involves two elements. First, a knowledge of the right way to worship God. And secondly, the source from which salvation is wrought. Uh, finally, I'm just introducing uh, today's lesson with some thoughts from Terry Johnson. Worship must again be the church's ultimate priority. Okay, it's not a secondary concern. It's the concern. It must be the church's ultimate priority and right worship must again be its chief concern. So if worship is the ultimate concern, then it, the next obvious question is how ought we to worship? And if you look at the history of Israel and her repeated failures and her falling into apostasy, it, it was doctrinal issues, yes, but it, it, it was those doctrinal issues came into focus in her worship. And it, she was continually given to false worship when God was constantly calling her back to the true worship of himself. And so Israel, you could say, was a people like the professing church today that did not value worship and did not care to worship God rightly. I'll finish the quote. Uh, we betray our reformed Puritan and covenanting heritage when we give to worship something less than first priority study, energy, and thought. First priority. So there, there. Uh, that, with that, with that, I'm, I'm just introducing now this third lesson. We didn't finish the second lesson, and, and really, that's what I want to to take and, and unfold. I've given you a handout. That handout will last us. At least one more class, if not another class and another. Uh, so this handout, we are not, we're only looking at the first six today. <clears throat> and then we're going to keep working through this. Uh, so don't think that the handout is going to be finished today. We finished last time by asking what are the distinctive elements of a liturgical Presbyterian worship service? Um, and, and liturgical, in contrast, I'm, go, I'm going to be working carefully out of heart uh, again for this lesson. And then we're going to set Daryl Hart aside for a few weeks. Uh, but remember, he says, uh, one of the most obvious features that sets high church traditions apart from low church Protestantism is worship. Again, the flavor of worship when you come into the service. They might be preaching the same gospel. They might be preaching justification by faith. But what is the worship like? That's what sets uh, the high and the low church apart. 
High church liturgy is more formal and reserved using approved forms and rituals than low church worship, which tends to be or tends towards spontaneous and folksy expression of devotion. One searches, he says, in vain to find informality or room for individual expression in the reformed liturgies of the 16th and 17th centuries. In fact, practically all the churches in Calvinism or the Calvinist wing of the Reformation produced and used written forms and followed a set order of service. Another way he defines high church, again, we read this last time, a respect for ritual formality and holy office. Let's see, I have a note here about page 12. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go back to that, though. So that's what we mean by a liturgical Presbyterian uh, worship. And the focus of the class will be exploring that idea in detail. I want to see not only what uh, the distinctive elements are, but how these function within a, a distinctly Presbyterian context. And so the things which I'm going to list, uh, you, you would find in other liturgical contexts, but you likely wouldn't find them in the same way. Uh, and so, we're, we're, I mean, you have the list there, these six things. Uh, so another way to ask the question is, so these elements functioning within a distinctly Presbyterian context, uh, and, and Daryl asked the question, if Calvin were alive today... What would he look for if he saw Presbyterian on the sign? Uh, would, would, would he find what he was looking for? Or what he, uh, what he found, would that be alien? And, and it's, it's, it's a question merely of intellectual honesty. If we are going to say we are Calvinists, we are heirs of Calvin, it, it doesn't do to, to totally shun his, his emphases <laughs> if... if uh, if we're going to claim to be the heirs of Calvin, then we ought to understand what that means. Or, or perhaps at least understanding what it means, perhaps we would make adjustments or perhaps we would even reject it. But, but for, some, for a church to say we're reformed, we're Calvinist, and then to have the rock concert on the stage and the super duper casual sermon, that, that's an oxymoron. And it's just plain intellectual dishonesty. So that's what we're going uh, to look at today. Uh, so one of the ways that you would see this is the uniformity of liturgy uh, in the early Reformed churches. The Genevan liturgy was widely used, and it looked like this, according to Daryl Hart. This, this does not match ours exactly, but you'll notice similar emphases. So this would be something like the order of worship in Geneva. You would have an invocation and a call to worship. An invocation is a prayer. Uh, you would have, uh, it's a prayer for God's presence. You would have confession of sins. You'd have a prayer for pardon. The sing- By the way, they sang psalms. Uh, a singing of a psalm, a prayer for illumination, lesson from scripture, sermon, collection of offerings, prayers of intercession, the Apostles' Creed, uh, Apostles' Creed, excuse me, which was interestingly sung while the elements of the Lord's Supper are prepared. Then you would have words of institution, instruction and exhortation. That's similar to what I do. You, there's a brief word of instruction and exhortation before the elements are distributed. You would have communion while a psalm is sung or scripture is read. This is something I would actually like to see change here. Uh, I would like for us to sing while the elements are being distributed, not to sit there in a 
in a funeral type, type service. That would be my preference. Uh, and it's interesting to see Calvin did that. Uh, I, was, I once visited a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, and that's what they did. And I thought, that's the way to do it. But look, that's what they did in Geneva. I didn't realize that. Uh, so they would sing while the elements were, dis- were distributed. Uh, people, I don't know this, but in the Lutheran church, they also came to the table, which I like too. I know, uh, in fact, Hughes Olive and Old told me at his table, it's the Presbyterian altar call. <laughs> Come on to me. Uh, so I really like that. I don't know if I could ever get this church to go along with that. Uh, but everyone's singing and then row by row you come to the table. I love that. So I'm just, you know, I'm just telling you where I'm coming from and, uh, we'll see if anything changes. Uh, we've already changed one thing, which is weekly communion. Obviously we're going to talk about that today, a prayer of Thanksgiving and then a benediction. So if anyone wants that list, I didn't include it on the handout, but I can easily reproduce that. So I'll just go over it again. Invocation, call to worship, confession of sins, prayer of par- prayer for pardon, singing of song, prayer for illumination, lesson from scripture, sermon, collection of offerings, prayer of intercession, Apostles' Creed, words of institution, instruction and exhortation, communion, prayer of thanksgiving, benediction. That's Daryl's list. Terry Johnson, uh, who more loosely puts this together, is just a list of elements that you would find in worship, these are not necessarily in order, but loosely in order, based upon the Genevan liturgy. You would have invocation, call to worship. You would have scripture reading and expository sermon, uh, which would which would be, by the way, uh, consecutive exposition. So preaching straight through a book, just as we do a prayer for illumination. You see already it's out of order because the prayer for illumination would obviously come before the expository sermon. You'd have the reading of the law and confession of sin. That likely came earlier in the service as well, as we saw from Daryl's list. A prayer of intercession, congregational hymnody and psalmody. So Terry Johnson is including the singing of hymns. And I don't know the history of that very well. I know that Calvin advocated singing of psalms in terms of more broadly in the Reformed Church. Churches of the 16th century, were they singing hymns? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I, I, I need to know the answer to that, though. The recitation of a creed and benediction. So when we recite a creed in the evening, it may seem a little bit stifled and, and, uh, and, and contrary to our low church American sensibilities. But in reality, this, this really is grounded in our reformed heritage. Uh, and I know some people don't like the Apostles' Creed, by the way. I, you know, in some ways, I'm not crazy about it. It has that weird phrase about he descended into hell. What is that about? Uh, but th- that was that was the most common creed that was used. They, I believe, they also used the Nicene Creed, which I think is a better creed. Uh, but the Apostles' Creed was was commonly used, and that's what we read in Daryl's list, which they sung. I, I'd love to know how that how that occurred. One of the things that we notice here, and this is something that I noticed not the first time I went to a Reformed Presbyterian church, but the first time I went to an OPC church, was the variety of prayer. You, you didn't just have one kind of prayer. Now, I'll say when I first came here, there was only one prayer. It was just the prayer. I think it just said that prayer <laughs> in the in the bulletin. And uh, and and it struck me when Kelly Jackson was last here and I said, you just take the full service. Sometimes I'll take I'll lead and then he'll preach. But it struck me when he said to me. Uh, well, what does that prayer look like? And I said, uh, well, I, you know, just pray. <laughs> that, that's not, 
even that misses the point. That's very much a low church sentiment. Uh, for, for the Reformed Presbyterians coming out of Geneva, they understood that there was a rich variety of prayer and that scripture or, or worship, excuse me, should, should have multiple uh, opportunities to express that. Well, this is another book by Hughes Oliphant Old Leading in Prayer, uh, which, which, well, he calls it a workbook for ministers. And you can see it really is a workbook. Uh, and this is something I'm going to go into next week. Uh, but uh, we might notice that prayers in, in, in uh, well, actually, I'm going to get to this point later. I'm just, I'm, I keep wanting to say it, but I'm just going to stop myself there. The point I'm trying to make now is the variety of prayer. Now, these are the different kinds of prayers that he lists. And really, I, I'm somewhat previewing something we want to introduce next year, uh, but, but this will be somewhat laying the groundwork here. We want to see all of these types of prayers and worship in the coming year, which would take very little adjustment, just a little bit of intentionality. Uh, now, we've already added one of them, and that's the prayer of illumination. Okay, We didn't used to have that, but that comes before the sermon. Uh, but even the prayer, what is that? Again, it just says prayer. If you go to other, sometimes when, when you guys, in fact, go to other OPC churches, you'll bring me the bulletin back. And typically, it, there will be the prayer of this, and the prayer of this, and the prayer of that. That's a reflection, again, of a, a Reformed liturgy. So, the first type of prayer is the invocation which I would like to see added. It is probably a 20-second prayer following the call to worship. God calls us to worship, and we ask him to be present, very simply, an invocational prayer. Uh, He talks about the Psalms as prayer, which includes responsive readings. Now, we have added that, but again, I said last week, you know, it's obvious, but uh, it needs to be said that it's a prayer. It's actually a prayer. So the Psalms are prayer, uh, there are also songs, obviously. Uh, they're often sung as psalms. Do you realize that, do you know what the last word of every hymn is in, uh, in, in the Blue Trinity hymnal? Amen. <laughs> and so especially in singing the psalms, they're viewed as, as prayers. Okay, a prayer of confession and supplication. That's what I want uh, the morning prayer to be, the prayer. And I want it to say, prayer of confession and supplication. So we're confessing our sin to God, and supplication means that, and this is really what my prayers typically consist of, God, uh, it's like we're Jacob wrestling with God for blessing. We're looking for God to bless this particular church, and us as Christian people. A prayer for illumination, we have that. Now a prayer for intercession, what's that? And we saw that was, that was part of the, uh, the liturgy. From Geneva, a prayer for intercession is different than supplication. I had to think about this, but it really is clear. And and uh, and as as we begin to add all of these, then uh, I, I will get guidance from this book to think intentionally about how these prayers look. But a prayer of intercession is praying for other churches and other Christians. That's what I want the evening prayer to be. Again, not just prayer, but we'll have an invocation, a call to worship, an invocation. The singing, and then we're going to have a prayer of intercession in the evening. Uh, at least that's that's what we're thinking of doing. And then communion prayers, and we do have those. Uh, so all the different types of prayers are, uh, are are going, Lord willing, to be found in our worship service, and it's going to say so in our liturgy. So it will create more intentionality in my prayer. 
something, uh, again, this will come in next week, but, you know, pr- praying in a modern church is very, it's a spontaneous expression. Uh, but, but he and, 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 and Hughes Oliphant Old speak of, that is a good thing, but as it, uh, something that ought not to be, uh, uh, purely spontaneous. He talks about the importance of studied prayer. He and, he and Hughes. And again, uh, he was the master, he was the mentor. So, uh, Hughes Oliphant and Terry Johnson. So, uh, studied prayer. That, I'll save that for next week, but not purely spontaneous. But, but some degree of intentionality and thought bringing to the prayers. Because everything, if you think about a Presbyterian worship service, and surely this will strike you the first time you come into an OPC church, everything is very, very well thought out. Everything is very intentional. We're not flying by the, the, the seat of our pants. So. so the variety of prayers. Our directory of worship uh, looks at uh, worship in this way, in terms of the liturgy. It doesn't have a set form, admittedly. Now, remember, I said the OPC has a directory of worship. The original Presbyterians had a directory of worship. By the way, here's the book. I've been talking about a confession and a directory of worship and a book of discipline. So it was all in one book, which I prefer. I like that a lot. You didn't have two books. You had one. Uh, but the modern, uh, the biggest conservative Presbyterian denomination, the PCA, does not have a directory of worship. And so you have a theological statement, you have a form of government, we need elders, deacons, and so forth, but you don't have a directory of worship. Our directory of worship does not, again, have a set liturgy, but it does have set what are called elements that are to be in the worship service. One of those, by the way, which we didn't have for years in defiance of the book. And as you know, we're under a broader government. We're not supposed to be defying these things uh, so that people can expect uniformity in the churches. It was the apostolic salutation. And for years, this church didn't have that. We had it. It's very simple. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's in every OPC church. And I asked, why don't we have it? Well, it turns out it's supposed to be there. Every bit as much as the benediction. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, sorry, that, that's the citation. Uh, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. They're equally important. They're both elements of worship. The difference between an element and a circumstance, an element is something that must be there, and which we as an individual church, at least so long as we have the OPC banner, are not free not to have, and a circumstance, so an element is something we believe scripture uh, commands us to have, a circumstance is something that is left to the discretion of the session. An example of a circumstance would be the, the timing of worship. We're going to have 11 a.m. worship, that's a circumstance. Or maybe the, the sermon series, there isn't, you know, we don't have a set sermon calendar, some denominations have that. I forget what they call that. Uh, but anyways, we don't have that. That's a circumstance. But as far as the elements are concerned, our book lays these out, and the liturgy ought to reflect this. And it divides it into two parts, it, according to the dialogical principle. Can anyone tell me what that means? All right, this is very important to Presbyterian worship. 
The dialogical principle is the concept that there is a holy conversation going on. Holy, H-O-L-Y. A holy conversation between man and God, which reflects the structure of the covenant. And who do you think speaks first? Who has the priority in that? Obviously, God. But we're called to respond to God in faith and obedience. And that's, again, what we're finding in the Old Testament, in, in the preaching of Exodus, that the structure of the covenant is reflected in worship. God speaks, the people respond. That's going to come out loud and clear, by the way, this evening. So uh, it's, it's just a constant theme, not because it's a hobby horse of mine, but because that's the theme of Scripture. And, and again, uh, we'll find the emphasis on the Sabbath. <laughs> so worship and Sabbath, which those two ideas really closely uh, correlate in Scripture. So it, it, it begins with the part from God to the people, the call to worship. Uh, The reading of God's word, the preaching, the sacraments and the blessings, but the blessings include the salutation and the benediction. So we're not free not to have those things. You can't, in other words, have a worship service without a sermon. You can't have a worship service where God's word is never read. Uh, So on and so forth. And there's a real question about whether you can have Sabbath worship without any partaking of the sacraments, which is why we've we've gone to weekly communion. The part from the people to God. Prayer, congregational singing. Notice the emphasis on congregational singing. We don't typically have choirs, and there's a reason for that. Confession of faith, which includes two things, individual professions, such as when someone professes faith. And by the way, just to blow your mind a little bit, there are some real surprises in our directory of worship. I, I told you recently, a few months ago, that the book says uh, the, the occasional amen is, is, is appropriate in worship because God is speaking through the preaching and the people uh, at times are so moved they cannot help but respond. We don't want the amen choir because that just becomes its own idol. Uh, but, but another thing that the book says that is kind of surprising to me is that when someone says yes to those five questions that is appropriate if the session uh, deems it appropriate, if the person wishes to do it, to give their personal testimony. Now, that might be something you would find more in a low church tradition. And yet our book makes an allowance for that. So individual professions, maybe that's just saying yes five times after professing faith to the to the elders uh, uh, privately. But also the public creedal confession, so that would be a reading of the Apostles' Creed or the Westminster Confession or something like that, and offerings. Now let me just say, coming into the new year, and this is why we didn't want to go to online giving, even though most churches do that, because we want to maintain the offerings as part, as an element of worship, and we've gotten away from that. And now the question, this is the question we've faced all through the last two years, once you take something away, how do you phase it back in? And there's an important lesson there. Uh, But... Offerings are part of worship. We don't like the idea of online giving or, or quite frankly, mailing the checks. There are people who do that. I mean, I'm thankful uh, that we have such a generous church. But it really is better to put your check in the plate because offering is the part from the people to God. It's an element of worship. Uh, so uh, you, the liturgy ought to reflect that in some way. And ideally, the book is saying, and again, you have to be very thoughtful here, there ought to be... Uh, a, a structure in which it's, it, 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 um, it balances each other. God, the people, God, the people, God. Now, I can tell you that's almost impossible to do perfectly. I've looked at our liturgy and I can't quite get it there. But 
it ought to be close. It ought to be close. All right. Now, that's that's Presbyterian liturgy. But uh, but what about uh, the the practices themselves within the liturgy that compose the liturgy and that give it a distinctly Presbyterian feel and flavor? I cannot believe it's 1030. This was actually supposed to be the bulk of the lesson. I just have so much to say about this, which is fine. At 13 weeks, I'm stopping, though, so I don't know what to say if I don't finish. Uh, but I feel like we've already still covered a lot of grounds, and this is only week three. Uh, Daryl asked the question. Let me find it. He says, most Presbyterian congregations follow this order in some fashion. He's talking about the Genevan order. He said, that's why the order of service is not sufficient qualification for inclusion in the high church wing of Protestantism. In other words... What he's saying is just to find that liturgy. Now, I would I would differ with him a little bit to find the liturgy is a great start <laughs> because in a lot of churches you won't. Um, but he's saying it's not enough. What what you really need is a distinct emphasis on these six things, which is what he has, uh, what he has here. And we're going to I think we're just going to start working through them uh, again. He says. Well, he says it's not sufficient, and then to go on, more important than a structured liturgy is the use of forms. So that's the first thing. Now, that keep that idea, that word form in your mind, because I'm going to make a lot of that in the next, uh, in the next lesson, and maybe suggest that Daryl makes too much of it. Uh, because Presbyterianism is not a, a slavishness to forms. That's what a true true high church expression would be. There's an opposite, another side of the spectrum. What's the opposite of a form? Using another F word. Freedom. Freedom. Did you look at the sheet or did you think? Okay. Freedom. Now, low church is maximum of freedom. I'm, I'm teaching next week in advance. Low church is maximum of freedom. It, it, it emphasizes always spontaneity. In fact, that's why I said very often in a really low church setting, the preacher will glory in the fact that he didn't even prepare a sermon. It's, 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 that's true spirituality. Nothing has been thought about. We're in the spirit right now. I'm just talking to you. Whereas in a high church setting, it would be so uh, carefully uh, thought out that perhaps, and this, this happens, you would be reading a sermon that someone else wrote, not as an act of plagiarism. These are called postals. But, uh, but because the, the sermons were prepared uh, for you, there were set sermons even that you followed, um, or at least a set schedule that the church was all following together, uh, which is what Christmas and Easter come out of, by the way. I know that's, that's something people don't like to hear, but that is what Christmas and Easter come out of. It's the church following a set schedule, uh, but in a much more structured way. So the, the irony, as Daryl will say, is, that is one of the most high church things you can do. <laughs> and who are the people most concerned to hold on to Christmas in Eastern America? It's the low church folks uh, so who are saying keep Christ in Christmas and so forth. My good friend, this is a joke I like to tell, so this is a joke, let me preface. He says, well, I, I would say let's put the mass back in Christmas because that's what it means, Christ mass. So it is a very, very, very Roman Catholic high church kind of thing to observe Christmas in, in the church. Uh, and in fact, they're even saying Christ's Mass, which is a very strange thing for a Protestant to even utter. Because Protestantism is a rejection, above all, of the Mass. <laughs> it's disassociating Christ from the Mass. 
so forms and freedom. I, I, uh, uh, we are looking today at the forms, uh, and, and uh, we will have to bring that into next week. And recognizing ultimately that there, there will be in a Presbyterian context a balance between form and freedom. Uh, but Daryl is especially concerned to emphasize the forms. And so is Terry Johnson, by the way. Uh, but Terry, more so than, than Daryl, doesn't want to see the church run away with these and lose uh, the freedom of the spirit in worship. And that was one of the great emphases of Martin Lloyd-Jones as well. So the first thing, the presence of set forms. What are examples of those? Well, Daryl says, and you might find this, uh, what would you guess? You would find this in some Presbyterian churches. This is more where my, the freedom side of the spectrum uh, kind of balks at this. But, but maybe, maybe I could envision this as part of our worship service sometime. And this was part of the Genevan worship. Written prayers. Written prayers. Have you ever been part of a worship service where there was a prayer in the bulletin that everyone recited together? And it was a very thoughtful prayer. I mean, let me just read one of Calvin's. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, who has promised to grant us or to grant our request in the name of thy well-beloved Son, thou hast taught us in his name also to assemble ourselves together, assured that he shall be present in our midst, and so on and so forth. I mean, you get the sense. This is a, this is a studied prayer that people are confessing together. Uh, much like a creed. A creed is another set form, by the way. Another set form is, you might say, I don't, li- I don't like this at all. What about the Lord's Prayer? When we recite the Lord's Prayer, that's a set form. Uh, whereas, again, freedom would be something we did spontaneously. So if the prayer was spontaneous, but then it was, it was followed by the Lord's Prayer, you would see that balance. But even then, if we had a prayer of intercession, you see there's a set form. There's something that's guiding us along the way. So, again, when you come into uh, a really high church setting, that's the thing that overwhelms you and it feels stifling. Uh, That really, I'm going to, I keep saying that, but that's the thought we're going to have to save for next week, the way you balance form and freedom. The second set form that Daryl talks about is the Lord's Supper. Now, he intentionally does this. You 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 would think, when you're talking about the presence of set forms, you would say, the first is the preaching. We're talking about Reformed Presbyterianism. The preaching is number one. Uh, but, but just to get us thinking, he puts the Lord's Supper first. Because that is a form or a set form. And you think about the way we follow it. There's room for spontaneity. But for the most part, there's a, there's a ritual that we're observing together. That's another word that uh, the low church sensibilities kind of balk at. But there's a ritual there. That we're following every time we do it. Uh, and, and really there's a beauty in that. Um, and one of the things I've been arguing is that the modern mind and heart is longing for these things and coming to the church and not finding them. And, and Daryl is saying Calvin would have longed for these things and he would have come into the churches today and he wouldn't find them. So the Lord's Supper, the importance of the Lord's Supper can be seen in two things. Again, we're talking about the presence of these things, but also the way they are done. Because the Lord's Supper was done in Roman Catholic churches. They were not saying, the reformers were not saying, you know, you're wrong to do the Lord's Supper. (laughs) You're wrong to do it every time. They weren't saying that. Ironically, that's what Presbyterians are saying today. 
you're wrong to do it so much. That's sacerdotalism. No, it isn't. That's not what the reformers were saying. They're saying you're doing it in the wrong manner. And interestingly, that's what Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 11, that if you come to the table in an unworthy manner, not an unworthy human being, but an unworthy manner, the way you do it is what's important. And we'll see the same with each of these points. It's not the presence of a sermon. You'll find a sermon in a Roman Catholic church. You'll find a sermon in a, in a liberal Presbyterian church. You'll find it in an Anglican church. But, but there's something about the sermon that, again, has that distinctly Presbyterian f- flavor. Looking at the Lord's Supper, what is it especially that... Um, there was a quote I wanted to read, actually. Uh, before we got to that. Well, I don't know where it is. I didn't put the page. Uh, but Daryl says what, what we're interested in is not the absence of ritual in Presbyterianism, but the presence of the good rituals. Okay, that's not, again, the low church just goes too far. It's like, hey, if the Roman Catholics do it, we don't want it, except Christmas and Easter. But other than that, we don't want it. So it's like, it's this constant reaction. And Daryl even talks about that. He said, I think in the 19th century, there was the influx of the Catholic immigrants from Ireland and, and perhaps other places. And it was almost as though the way to express your Protestantism was just to say, well, we don't do it like they do it. And you can see that even today being the case. That wasn't the framework of the reformers. <laughs> they were fixing what was wrong, but they were not throwing away everything. So the Lord's Supper, uh, the Lord's Supper... The pre- oh, I was saying the presence of the good rituals. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit all over the place. That was a thought I wanted, I wanted to put in with the set forms, um, and, and, uh, and I forgot to say it. So the good rituals, he says, are the word and the sacraments. The bad ones are any rite or ceremony devised by human wisdom, no matter how well intended, that have no sanction in Scripture. So how is the Lord's Supper to be seen as a ritual? Uh, Well, as I said, in the way we do it, uh, in the frequency, the fact that it ought to be done weekly, uh, because it it is part of worship. So, in other words, if you should expect when you come into a Presbyterian church to find the Lord's Supper being served, and you should be surprised if you don't find it. This is part of, this is one of the good rituals, the word and the sacrament. Why Why would you not um, and the argument, by the way, is because typically people are saying it's a reaction to Roman Catholicism, and that's the best they can do. But why wouldn't you have it? But the, but the second thing uh, is, so the frequency, but also the view of the table. What is transpiring at the table? And again, you see the difference between the high and the low church sentiments here. What to, what, if you go to your your standard country Baptist church, and I've been to plenty. I'm not picking on them. I'm just, I'm just drawing a contrast. What would they call the Lord's Supper? They wouldn't call it a sacrament. Do you know? They're very intentional about this. They call it an ordinance. Look for that if, if you see that language. Now, I say ordinances all the time, but I'm not afraid to say sacrament. But they would be. An ordinance. Uh, so, and, and for them, in that ordinance, it is what, this was the Zwinglian view, it's a bare memorial. We're just simply saying, we're, we're, we're remembering Christ at the table. It's an act of faith. 
it, they, they're stripping it of the ritual significance, of its sacred significance. You come to a Roman Catholic church and it's, again, you're overwhelmed by the sense of the ritual. <laughs> and it, it's, it's sacerdotalism. They're saying uh, it, 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 it simply by the words of institution, it, it becomes uh, the body and the blood of Christ. I mean, it just, it, it goes so far beyond even what scripture says. Uh, but you at least have to give them credit that they're, they're saying that there's a real transaction between the divine and the human at the table. And they simply go way too far. Calvin is adjusting that, but he's bringing it down the spectrum, not all the way down to Zwingli. Uh, he was much closer to Luther and saying that in this ritual, there is indeed a transaction between the divine and the human. And, and, and that's precisely why we ought to find it here. And that's precisely why we ought to revere the sacraments and, uh, and, and, and to seek to meet with God there. Uh, so let me let me do some reading from Daryl. I said I was going to do a lot of reading, but we just never quite got into this uh, part of the of the chapter. He says Calvin's desire for weekly observance uh, was a is a welcome tonic for those desiring a, a higher uh, view of worship and Presbyterianism. But he says, but even more important than the liturgical adjustment that weekly observance of the sacrament requires. And so if you're going to weekly, admittedly, you're. You're becoming, you're, you're, you're uh, ascending on the high church ladder. You're making adjustments in the high church direction, but that's not enough. He says even more important is Calvin's understanding of the real presence of Christ in the supper. And, and he argues uh, that for Calvin, that the Lord's Supper was every bit as central to worship as was the sermon, because the saints are meeting with Christ there. Now, an interesting anecdote from Calvin's life, and this is helpful for any minister who says, this is really important, this is really something I want to see happen. He never got it. (laughs) He never got it. And then Presbyterianism from there went in a very strange direction. Uh, In fact, I have a token. You used to have to get a token from the session to take the Lord's Supper at the once a year Lord's Supper service. (laughs) And so it went to quarterly, which is very common. And then it actually went to once a year in Presbyterianism. And that's a historical development I do not understand, so I can't even explain it. But that is definitely something that is alien to Calvin's thought. And so what's more common today is monthly, but even then it's closer to that unfortunate historical development. Calvin would see it as as a regular element in worship and as something that was sacred, It, it affirms, in other words, the, the reformed uh, banner or slogan, word and sacrament. <laughs> well, why do we say that if we don't believe in the centrality of the sacraments? And so another way that we can convey this idea as reformed, while, while pushing away sacerdotalism, which we don't want, which is an excessively uh, high view of the sacraments. Uh, in fact, in some of these high church traditions, the sermon is relegated to the smallest possible place, but the, but the grand event, the grand transaction is the Lord's Supper. Uh, one of the ways that we convey our, our convictions about the sacraments is that we call them a means of grace. That's common language that you hear in the Reformed churches. That, God is, that there's real power in the sacraments and that God is really conveying grace to those who partake of them. 
And so they're not merely symbols, Daryl says. They are real means of grace. Such an understanding, he says, of the sacraments teaches that the Reformed tradition is not opposed to rite or ceremony. Instead, he says it's a question of which rites are the good ones, and he talks about the good rituals. I think that's why I couldn't find it, because it was at the end of his discussion on the Lord's Supper. I thought it came before the list. All right. I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop there. I thought I would easily get through the list, uh, but I'm, I'm really eager to get into the third and the sixth, which is not just, again, the priority of preaching. That's not enough, but that gets you, that gets you a long ways. Uh, but, but, but our understanding of preaching. And then the same with the Lord's Day. But we'll also look at office and ordination and church membership. All of these underscore the centrality of the church, number one, and of her weekly gatherings. All of these things become, you, you see, expressions of that. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up with that next time. And then I really want, as I, as I get beyond that, to look at um, the form freedom and I, I suppose also these Presbyterian qualities, uh, which I have listed out there. So I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop there. I'm sorry we didn't, didn't make any more progress than that. I have so much to say about these things. Um, but, but there we are. So we'll stop there and take it up next time. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, the rich heritage which we find in Presbyterianism. And we ask you, dear Lord, that uh, we, might, uh, we might find... Uh, great, uh, great reasons for, for these things, not simply because, well, the men we admire did them, but because we see why they did them. And perhaps we, those convictions will begin to form in us as well. And Lord, uh, we've just been talking about worship, but now we get to do it. And in some sense, uh, that is much harder to do. But we pray that your blessing would rest on, on every act of devotion which we are about uh, to partake of. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.